This is Inside the Times. I'm Susan Lehman. Our guest today is Phil Corbett. He is the standards editor for the New York Times. That means he oversees the New York Times style guide and is the final arbiter on questions of New York Times style. What happens if a presidential candidate uses vulgar language on an Access Hollywood tape? You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the pussy. (laughs) I can do anything. Should the Times use the vulgar term in its coverage, in its headlines? These are questions for the standards editor, and this campaign has presented a lot of them. Phil is here to talk to us about time style generally and talk about the challenges that this campaign posed for time style. Hello, Phil. Hi, Susan. So, Donald Trump uses an obscene word on a videotape. What questions arise here? Well, there were at least two vulgarities, I think, on that famous recording, but it did lead to a lot of discussions here in the newsroom. As you I'm sure you know we don't routinely use vulgarities in our stories because we want the tone of the times to be respectful and civil and thoughtful, but we do make exceptions. And in the end, we decided this was a time when maybe we needed to have an exception. Was there separate discussion about whether or not the word should go in the headline or not? There were several layers of discussion. I think the first thing we decided, because this this recording was obviously so newsworthy and because exactly what Donald Trump said was really at the heart of the news, we decided first off that we were going to use the the video itself on our website. We weren't going to beep anything out. We weren't going to edit it or cut out the obscenities because we thought clearly people are going to want to listen to that recording for themselves. So we knew we were going to do that for starters. And then the question became, do we put it in the story? Do we put it in the headline? Do we use it repeatedly in the story or just once? All the time we're trying to balance out the importance and the newsworthiness of it and making sure our readers really understood what was at the core of this story, but without damaging our tone or seeming gratuitous or offensive. So tell us a little bit about what went into the decision. Was there a lot of back and forth? There was a fair amount of discussion, and ultimately it was up to the executive editor, Dean Baquet, to make the decision as to whether we were going to use those words in the story itself because they were pretty strong vulgarities, which I'm not going to repeat here. So hold on for one second. Tell us what your role is as the standards editor if Dean is making the final determination. In most cases of maybe less earth-shattering significance, I would make this decision myself or somebody on the news desk would make it in in sort of conforming to our usual standards. In this case, because we knew the story was so big and because the language involved was really so far beyond what we normally would put into a news story, I think we all felt that Dean should be involved in that discussion. So I was there to advise and to sort of do the on the one hand, on the other hand, I laid out how we might proceed if we decided not to use the vulgarities in the story itself. You how mean you pre- alternate ways of referring to the word other than saying it? Uh, yes. Were there ways that we could convey the information to readers and they would understand what was at stake, but without using the vulgarities? In the end, I think there was a pretty strong consensus that we should use the words as Trump spoke them, 
One thing we did decide, though, was that once we used those words once, we printed the language once in the original news story, that was probably enough. We knew there were going to be dozens and dozens of follow-up stories that would refer to this recording and the outcome from it. And I argued strongly, and Dean agreed, that we didn't need every single time to remind readers exactly what the language was. And what do you say to readers who look at this and say, oh, look, they're opening the floodgates. Now the New York Times is going to be filled with vulgarities and four-letter words. That's really the the balance and the challenge that we're trying to strike. And I guess I would say it's sort of the difference between a rule and an exception. This wasn't the new floor. So it was not a signal that this is the new New York Times. No, we weren't trying to send that sort of signal. And I would say, judging from the reaction that I saw, I think readers got that. And in fact, I would say the majority of the reaction, I think, was that people thought it was a good decision to be clear on what uh, was in this recording. Were there other occasions where time style was changed or exceptions were made? Yes. Another example from the campaign was a a video we did that got a lot of attention that showed Trump supporters at a number of rallies across the country, different places over a long period of time, and some of the really inflammatory things that were said. Again, we made sort of the same judgment that that language, the nature of it, the tone of it was central to what we were trying to portray. It also helped that with a video, you have some tools that you don't have with a text article where you can warn readers, as we did at the beginning of that video, and we let readers know that there are racial slurs and and vulgarities in this video. And that gives gives them a sort of opt-in, opt-out choice that they don't have say, in a printed story where they just start reading and all of a sudden they're confronted with this kind of language. Does that seem likely to arise more and more as the Times resorts to different ways of storytelling, including a lot of video? I think so. I think so. Actually, you know, there have been other instances, even just in the past year, of videos where we have decided to allow obscenities or racial slurs Some of the videos that have emerged from some of the police shootings that have been very controversial, where you can hear people shouting in the background, we've allowed language obscenities, say, in those cases. In a situation like that, I feel like it would be strange to beep out a word, to bleep something out. It just seems sort of distracting from the main point. But again, you have the option where you can tell readers in advance they know what the video shows and you can warn them. That also goes for images that might be upsetting, somebody getting shot, video of an aftermath of of a bombing or a wartime video that might contain images that can be very disturbing. If it's in a video, you can let people know what's Warning ahead. contains you can graphic warn them. imagery. And right? we do that, and I think that's an effective device, whereas if you're going to put a, a picture on the top of the print front page of the newspaper, people are going to see that whether they want to or not. They're going to see it without any sort of warning of what they're getting. And I think that can be a little more 
in your face and a little more upsetting to people. All right, let's step back for a minute away from this campaign as if such a thing were possible and talk a little bit about style and usage at the Times and the way it changes and what your job is. In general, maybe you could tell us what are you aiming for when you evaluate various questions in terms of propriety for the New York Times? What kinds of considerations are you making? Sure. Well, I think there are a couple of misconceptions that I sometimes find with readers and even sometimes internally. For one thing, I think people imagine that this is a much more sort of authoritarian and centralized process than it really is. They imagine somehow that we have this list of approved terms that must be used and this list of forbidden terms that must never be used, and that in every single case, I'm sort of dictating or some small group of editors are dictating the language that should be used. And believe me, that is not the case. There's no monolithic cabal that's making these decisions. Another misconception I think that some people have when I hear from readers is they think that the time somehow should be sort of out ahead, be the vanguard of deciding what style should be, what usage should be, introducing new terms, for instance, which really is not what we're trying to do. For the most part, we're trying to reflect established, familiar usage that educated readers would would recognize and not to be sort of in the vanguard of changing the way society talks about some topic. Well, that delivers us straight into the territory of transgender honorifics. What is the Times thinking about that, if not the cabal, the assorted deciders? This is certainly a topic that has come up more and more in the last couple of years and I think will be coming up still more in the future. How we refer to transgender people, how we describe them, it's long been our approach that to the extent we possibly can, we refer to people the way they want to be referred to. That goes for their name. And it also goes, in the case of transgender people, for their gender identity. If somebody identifies as a woman, then we refer to that person as she, and we use the name that that person identifies with and chooses. But that's just simply respect for the people that we write about. What has come up more in in recent times is people who don't identify necessarily as either male or female. It's a lot trickier, particularly for the Times, since we are one of the few news organizations that continues to use traditional courtesy titles, Mr., Ms., and Mrs. So one of the approaches that some people have chosen is to use a, a new sort of newly invented courtesy title, Mix, M-X, period. That is something we've done on a couple of occasions. It's a little tricky because we think a lot of readers are unfamiliar with it and are likely to do a double take and maybe think it's a typo or something. On the other hand, if somebody chooses to use that courtesy title and would be offended by being referred to as Mr. or Ms., our general tendency would be to respect that choice. So what we've been doing now is in rare cases, sort of carefully, we've used Mix a few times, always explaining to readers why we're doing it, that this is a courtesy title, a non-gendered courtesy title that this person uses. But that's a challenge and one that I think we'll be seeing more of. I get a lot of complaints from people who say, why doesn't the Times get rid of this outmoded, honorific thing anyway? No one goes by Mr. and Ms. I'm sure you get a lot more of that than I do. We actually have been having, I would say, more conversations. I've been hearing from more of my colleagues and talking to to people more about that question of courtesy titles in the last couple of years. This is part of an overall trend, I think, where 
we and other news organizations, too, are looking for appropriate places where we can adopt a more conversational tone. The Times traditionally has been pretty formal and serious in the way we write. And for the most part, in our straight news coverage, we still are that way. But we realize with younger readers, especially with the digital audience, they tend to be comfortable with a more conversational sort of tone. Maybe some of those readers find the courtesy titles, Mr. Obama, Mrs. Clinton, to be at least a little unusual, if not off-putting. I don't think we're prepared to abandon them yet, but we're considering ways in which we can have a more conversational tone and yet still be the New York Times. It seems that most of the decisions about language are actually political decisions. And I'm thinking of the decision to call torture, torture at a particular point, what qualifies as terrorism and who the New York Times is prepared to refer to as a terrorist has changed. There are lots of geographic questions that you and I spoke about that have political implications as to how we nominate various places. Are there other pressures aside from political pressures, or is that the main kind of element that animates our language changes here? Well, there are a lot of style book-type questions that come up that I discuss with my colleagues and we rule on that are not political at all, that are much more mundane. But you never hear about those because there isn't a lot of emotional reaction to them. There's not a lot of heat. So the ones that tend to get a lot of notice are the ones that are controversial and that are more political. An example of a more uh, straightforward one would be a discussion we've had just in the last couple of weeks about the question of whether we, in our headlines, could use UK instead of Britain. So Britain is sort of our default term for the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, as it's formerly known. But in a number of cases, some of our editors thought it would be better to use UK. It's, it's the, probably the more common term in Europe and in the UK itself. It's also easier to fit in certain headlines. And my one hesitation I had was whether to American readers it would be a little less familiar than Britain – We actually even did a little bit of testing to see whether changing that one way or another in a headline online made any difference. Made any difference in traffic? Yes. We have a way of doing that. We found that it didn't seem to make any difference. People are as happy to read about Britain as they they seem to be just as, as willing to click on a headline about the UK as a headline about Britain. But the political ones can be very fraught. Another one that's come up in recent years is how to refer to immigration and people who are in this country without legal status. As you know, there's an extremely heated political debate, and it has spilled over into even the language you use. People on one side who are very anti-immigrant tend to use phrases like illegals or illegal aliens or even criminal aliens. On the other side, people who advocate for immigrants prefer terms like undocumented workers, people without papers, people without documents. I find what I try to avoid is being caught between choosing either this term that one side advocates for or this other term that the opposite side advocates for, because then it seems as though you're taking sides. The best approach, if you can do it, is to find some other language, because really we are trying to be impartial, and sometimes 
the words you choose can affect whether people think you're being fair or not. Is there an area that you find particularly controversial, a hot zone where you know there's going to be a lot of controversy? Well, I think the one you mentioned earlier about how to describe transgender people because that's such an emotional issue and people it's it's very personal for a lot of people but it also has sort of gotten caught up in the culture wars to some degree there are questions that sometimes arise about sexist language people think that certain terms suggest some underlying sexism and that can be very fraught i'll give you an example on a couple of different occasions i've had readers write in to complain when we use the word scold, the verb scold, in connection with Hillary Clinton or another female politician. Clinton scolds opponent for such and such. And I've, on more than one occasion, had readers write in and say, you would never, ever use the word scold for a a male politician. You're showing your sexism by using this word in connection with a woman because it gives this impression of a uh, nagging woman, this stereotype. And, you know, that question really brought me up short. And I said, hmm, I wonder. And so I quickly did a search on nytimes.com and almost immediately came up with multiple examples of Trump scolds so-and-so, Obama scolds such-and-such, Sanders scolds somebody else. And I realized that, in fact, we did use it in a variety of cases for men and for women. But that doesn't change the fact that when you use a word like that in connection with a woman, there's a risk that it's going to strike people in a certain way. And they will see you as using sexist language, even if, in fact, you're using the same language you would use for somebody else. So that's a real challenge. What qualifies you or anyone else to be a standards editor? Well, I have the job, whether I'm qualified for it, some of our readers might debate that point. But in my case, I think a lot of it just has to do with experience. I've been at the Times 26 years. I've done a variety of editing jobs. So you acquire over that level of time both a lot of experience with dealing with these kinds of issues and a good sense of what the Times is all about and what readers expect from the Times. So that's what I'm trying to bring to the job. Terrific. Thank you so much, Phil Corbett. Thanks for having me. Do you have questions about Times style? Why don't you send them to us and we'll have the standards editor weigh in. You can send those along to timesinsider at nytimes.com. This is Inside the Times. I'm Susan Lehman. Thanks to Pedro Rosado, our producer, and thank you for listening. <laughs>